For the last two years, I've had the pleasure of listening to Molly Fisk's essays while preparing them for our newscast. And while I did meet her briefly when I took this job, most of our interactions have been through email. April is National Poetry Month, and this week Molly submitted her 600th essay. This confluence of events spurred me to action. I asked Molly if we could sit down for a chat. Having heard her talk often about how she likes to write while enjoying her coffee at a local shop, I thought it would be appropriate to record our conversation there, amid the sounds of coffee cups clinking and chairs being dragged about. Here it is, as recorded. Tell me a bit about your past. I know that a lot of people have been hearing you on our radio station for a long time, but there are some people that are just joining us. Introduce yourself to people that have just started listening to your essays. All right, my name is Molly Fisk. I was born and raised in San Francisco, and then I spent 20 years in the Boston area with brief sojourns to Norway for a year and Chicago for two years. And then I came back to California and in my mid-30s, and I had been, I'd done a lot of strange little jobs, like one of my jobs was I was a, I ran the library of a architectural engineering firm in Cambridge, Massachusetts, that was building a military city in Saudi Arabia, the King Khalid military city. And the big story about that was that at some point, someone realized that the bathrooms had been built facing Mecca, which was not going to work, and they had to redo all the bathrooms. Anyway, I was in charge of all the big drawings and putting them in drawers and getting them out on the right time and stuff like that. But really what I did in Boston was run a sweater design business. And then it, I did that for about 10 years, and it didn't end well. I was shut down by the state for an statute from the 1800s where you can't have people do hand-crafted um, clothing in their homes. And I was so upset about all that, and also my dad was a businessman, and I wanted to understand him a little better, so I went to business school. But I'm the kind of person who, I went to an all-women's business school that was only one year long, so it was incredibly intense. So I had a big party and said goodbye to all my friends, and then I went to business school for 12 months. Then I was a bookkeeper, then I was a banker in Chicago for a couple of years. Fortune 1000 lending, very fancy, but you know, sprockets and Midwestern things that aren't sexy at all. That turned out to be really not my native language, and other I could do it, but other people I was working with were, it was their native language, and it was fascinating to watch how good they were at it, and I was like, this isn't going to be right for me, it's, it's not fun enough, and it's too much hard work to do the translating. So then I went into this probably four years of being a bookkeeper, because that was easy, and I knew how to do it from the back. So I was a bookkeeper mostly for restaurants, first in Boston, and then I moved back to where I grew up, the Bay Area, and for a while I didn't have to work, but then I had to get a job, and I went and became the bookkeeper for Cafe Ray's and Point Ray's Station, because I was living out in West Berlin. Um, and that was when I started to have memories of, of child abuse come back to me. And I didn't, I'd never heard of that as a possibility. I thought I'd had 
pretty good childhood. I could point to some things that were weird and uncomfortable, but I would never have said to anybody before I started having those memories that something was wrong. And then I spent about four years going through hell. And as part of that process, someone handed me a book of Mary Oliver's poems. And I don't know if you've read Mary Oliver, but her work is very accessible. She often uses the general you. One of her poems starts out, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. So that general you got into my skin somehow and her straightforwardness. And she's full of forgiveness and kind of a combination of forgiveness of human failings and appreciation for nature, connection to nature. And I thought, like an idiot, oh, I could do that. And I tried to write and I did write and was able to write. And then I read a couple books and I was living in Stinson Beach um, where I didn't really know people so I didn't have much in terms of a social life. My family was estranged from me and I from them because of the stuff I was remembering. Um, and I went and wrote in different restaurants every day and, and did exercises out of books um, and just wrote what I was feeling and thinking. And after about six months, I took a writing class from Anne Lamott, hmm. who's a pretty famous writer now of prose. At the time, she hadn't gotten famous yet. It was a class she taught for a week in a church basement. Um, and in that class, there were people who'd heard about a wonderful poet who dealt with abuse issues in her own work. And she was teaching a class in Petaluma in her living room. And her name, is Dorianne Locks, and she was actually just at our Sierra Poetry Festival last weekend. So I got to see her again after many, many years. And I drove at night, on Tuesday nights, up to her house from Stinson Beach to Petaluma, which was about an hour on the back road, and learned how to be a poet in her living room. <laughs> That's a great origin story. One of the things that I thought about as you were saying that is what how do you teach somebody to write? Can anybody write? I mean, outside of obviously there's grammatical rules, etc. but... There's a lot of talk about this among writers because on the one hand you can't. People have their own experience and their own way of talking about it. You can, you can help them... It's a little bit like sculpture, I think. You can help them get the marble out of the way so the sculpture appears. You can um, encourage the things they do that are good and not mention the things that you don't like, which is how I teach. I don't say that's bad. I just say, this one's great. And if something's confusing, I'll say, well, I don't quite understand what you're trying to say here. So in a way, you can't teach, but you can definitely help. You can show people what's possible. You can show them all kinds of different poems or and whatever you're trying to teach them. You can show them examples of that, and they can get the idea or not. I taught um, my big, uh, what's the word? My big discovery for myself as a teacher was that I taught for UC Davis Extension for five years or something. And I had a 
person in class whose poems were terrible. Um, and by terrible, I mean they were, they had lots of cliches, they were um, oversimplified and kind of obvious. And one of the things that's fun about poetry, there's so many different kinds of poetry. You can be very straightforward and you can be obvious, but part of the fun is to be less obvious. And instead of saying, I'm not going to be able to give you an example on the fly here, but instead of being straightforward, you can put something in metaphoric terms. And it's understandable, it's easily understandable, but it's not exactly what you're saying. Poetry has a lot of compression in it. You take out words and phrases that you don't need. Where prose, you just burble along like it's a conversation. Not to say prose isn't incredibly crafted, but the compression of poetry and the open spaces in poetry are the things that I love the most and that differentiate it the most from prose. So I had this student and I loved her and we just said, oh, there were like 10 people in the class, over and over we said, wow, that's a great phrase, that's a great line, look at that nice verb. And five years in, she wrote a fabulous poem out of what I thought of as nowhere because the week before it had not been fabulous. And I just thought, Molly, you have no idea what's going to happen. You just keep helping people do things, and some of them are catch it in 15 minutes, which is what Dorian used to say about me, that she just would say, try this, and I'd try it, and it would be good. And then I'd know it from then on. I mean, I, I was ready somehow. And I grew up in a literary family, in a way. I mean, Uncle John was kind of this, my uncle was John Updike, the novelist. And we saw him every summer, we'd go there, and he was at the dinner table, and um, he didn't pay any attention to us kids, and he never paid any attention to my writing until he was dying. But um, having conversations with people who are that literary, my parents and my Aunt Mary had all been well-educated, and so you absorb a lot of that stuff. Both my grandparents went to college, which is not usual in my generation. Um, so I think I had a lot of uh, language in my life, but I had never thought to be a poet. It had never occurred to me. It wouldn't have had any appeal if I had to occur to me, because it's not something where you can make a living. Mm -hmm. So, but it saved my life in those months after I started remembering, and since then. Um, and it is my native language. That was the other thing. The minute I found it, I knew that it was mine in some way that I hadn't ever had anything. I'd had my, my business as a sweater designer. I knew those designs and the process were mine, but it was different. It's very solitary to design a physical object. And it's solitary to write a poem too, but then you read it to somebody. I mean, poems are about sharing things. So either on the page or in the air, you're hearing somebody's opinions or life or description. Mm -hmm. So so you did mention some aspects of poetry. There's space, there's concision. And I know that it's a different answer for each poet, but for you, who do you write for? Who is your audience? Is it for you? Do, you? do you have somebody in mind for each one? 
That's a good question. I don't... Some people say you should, you should write to a friend. You should pretend you're writing to a friend or you should write to an actual friend. And I don't have that feeling of a single person or a group of individual people that I would know that I'm writing for. Um, I think... So one of the things I know about myself is that of all the things I want in life, it's to be known. And in a way, I'm writing to say who I am rather than to tell that to any particular, it's sort of like, I'm gonna say what, what I think and who I am, I'm gonna show you who I am to anybody who's out there. And it's interesting, it's a little like radio because there you are by yourself with a microphone and there's no, you know, I can find the statistics on who's listening and where they live from KVMR, but I can't tell that from the booth. And I'm just kind of talking to everybody. And in a way, that's what I got from Mary Oliver, was that general you. And I'm not, I can be um, instructive the way she sometimes is. You know, you do not have to be good. Who's she talking to? Herself and everybody else. And that's, I feel like I can do that myself. Sometimes I'll actually say in an essay, I wouldn't do this in a poem, but in an essay I'll say, dear listeners or thank you listeners or whatever it is. But I'm not really imagining, you know, whoever in a car driving up 80 who might be listening. I want to include everybody who's out there. Do poems, can poems have different meanings? In other words, can a poem have one meaning when you craft it and then perhaps a different meaning when someone else reads it? One of the things poets joke about among ourselves is how some graduate student will look at this poem years from now and figure out things I never thought of when I was writing it. So there's that aspect of it where you reveal things you don't know you're revealing just as humans do in conversation, but maybe more strongly because you're an artist and you're expressing an art. Um, I don't, for me, I haven't ever looked at, a, at an older poem and thought, oh, that's what was going on in a way that I didn't know at the time. But at the time that I'm writing, I mean, often I'll write stuff and not have any idea what's going on. And then I'll read it and think, oh, well, that's okay. And then if I know trying to think of a good example. I'm not a good reviser. I'm a, I was one of those kids who was good at school at the, on the first try, so I never learned how to be patient and try again and make things better. And poetry taught me that. Poetry really taught me to grow up in a kind of way that I could apply to my life as well as my writing, where, where I figured out, but it was long, it was like 10 years in when I suddenly figured out that if I revised something, made, look, looked at it more carefully and made the verbs stronger or took out a bunch of adjectives that didn't need to be in there, it was a better poem. I just lost my train of thought. We're talking about learning things after you've written it. When I start out to write a poem, almost all the time I don't know where it's gonna end. And you and I have talked about that before. Um, and people, I know people who say, well, I'm going to write now about women's friendships, or I'm going to write about what's going on with all these school shootings, and, and, or fire. I've written a couple of 
what I think are really good fire poems. But I didn't, and I started out thinking, I got to write about fire, but I didn't know what I was going to say. One of them starts out as a list of all the things that burned in the Paradise Fire. I had no idea that was going to happen. And then the list of physical objects at the end of the poem turns into animal body parts and then humans. And I didn't know that was going to happen either. So both part of my process and part of what I love about doing it is that there's all this stuff in my brain that I don't know. And in a way that reflects on the abuse memories coming back. It's like I learned through that process that I didn't know everything, even in my own head. And I find that weirdly impossible and also fascinating. I think part of why I didn't commit suicide, which a lot of people have done in my situation, is that I was so amazed that my own brain was doing this thing of hiding from me. And I wanted to find out what the, you know, it's like you don't stop the story before you get to the ending. And in my case, I feel like I probably got to the ending of all the abuse stuff. I hope so, anyway. But there's a way that I haven't gotten to the ending of what's in my brain, and I'm wanting to find out. So I'm going to stay alive as long as I can in order to, you know, hear what that is. So despite, you know, that really tough situation that you went through, do you consider yourself to be a generally happy person now? Yes. Um, I think one of the things that the rough stuff taught me was how to hang on to joy, how to find beauty, how to look for beauty and find it, and how to hang on to joy. Um, and I think that's what I do in both the essays and the poetry. I'm looking around. What writers do is notice things, and I think especially poets are noticing little things that other people go past every day and don't happen to stop and see. You know, I mean, I sat in this very cafe and looked out this window at that brick building across the street and wrote about rain one time and how I had just discovered because it was raining, I had parked not in the parking lot but across the street and I'd walked over the road and it was a big curve and the gutters on both sides had water in them but not the center of the road. And I had never thought about roads being engineered like that before. I mean, it was all these interesting things that I'd never thought about. So part of what my job is, and Utah Phillips, this was his line about me all the time. It's like, you know, your work is that you notice everything. And I, certainly not everything, but I'm the one who's gonna say, you know, this plant on this corner in my town is now blooming, or, um, just anything that you might not have noticed. Hubcap shapes. Uh, so in those noticings, you can find a lot of beauty and you can find a lot of joy and you can also find the definition of what happened in the fire in, in paradise. I mean, I'm not here to try, I do try to cheer people up. I do try to find an angle that isn't despair. And at the same time, I'm not trying to shy away from what's actually happening. 
So that's an interesting balance. And I think it's a balance I provide to a reader that I'm also providing to myself. I mean, I'm not in danger of harming myself anymore, but I certainly have a layer of my life that's tough still. And it's not something I share very much. I've got a circle of friends that understands me and I understand them and we work with that. When you've had a really big trauma, you can't you can't really share it with people who haven't had it also. It's one reason I think I'm a good life coach. A lot of the coaching I do has been around traumatic events, and I can hear a lot of stuff that other people can't listen to, can't stand it. But because I went through my own difficulties and lived, I can stand it. And, I, and that kind of support for another person is just invaluable. And I say this as someone who gets that kind of support. So there are these layers in my life of you know, what happened to me and what I'm able to express in poetry. There's a lot of stuff I've said in poetry that I don't know that I could say outright in prose. And for all kinds of reasons, it wouldn't sound good or I'm still too afraid. I wouldn't want to state something, even though the people who hurt me are dead. You know, there's a, there's a lot of... There's a lot of effect to what happens to you um, in states of trauma, and that, you know, I'm, I'm still behaving from responses that I made back then that I haven't been able to change. Um, but a lot of that is something I don't, I don't want to harm an audience. I'm not trying to say what I need to say as a battering ram, I feel like, and I was early on, I would go to and do a poetry reading and read 10 child abuse poems in a row and you could see the audience just basically collapsing in front of you and I couldn't help it. I had to get that stuff out. I had to tell the story because not telling about abuse is such a big deal. And now I would never do that to an audience. I don't want to hurt anybody. I mean, I'll slide one poem in there maybe, depending on what the situation is. But almost... I mean, I don't read those poems aloud very often anymore. You, you said that growing up, you you kind of did things sort of one and done, right? You, yeah. would, you would finish it and be done, and as you got older, you've learned to go back. Is a poem ever done, or do you have poems that you've written years ago, reread, and thought, actually, this needs to change here? Or are they essentially sealed and sacred once they've been complete? Um, I don't go back and change words in old poems. I feel like the old poems were written at a time and that's how much I knew and they should stand as, a, as evidence of that. Um, and I've watched two of my favorite poets, Sharon Olds and Galway Cannell, wrote poems that I loved and then they put out a selected poem collection, and they changed those two poems that I had loved. One of them, Sharon Olds's, I had memorized, and she changed some of the words. And I can't, first of all, I don't agree with her changes, and I feel like that's a little ballsy to say about someone as <laughs> renowned as Sharon Olds. But I, and I, under, I can see exactly why she did it, but I wouldn't have done it myself, looking at the two options that I can see from outside. Um, 
Well, so for one of my poems that I quite like and that other people have liked a lot is called Hunter's Moon. And it starts out about being, um, I can't remember the first line. I think the first line is mid-December dusk and the sky slips down the rungs of its blue ladder into indigo. Uh, yeah, well, sure. Hunter's Moon is in October. And I didn't really realize that until 10 years after I'd written the poem. And I could say mid-October, I can change that poem. And I watched somebody, um, people take your poems and they put them on the internet or, you know, somebody put that poem on the internet and just left off the <laughs> phrase because it was wrong. Um, so I can see changing something like that if I wanted to publish a poem in a selected poems. But I'd probably put a note in the back and say, I'm sorry, but this is what happened. Mm -hmm. um, when, when that poem, for example, appeared on the internet, how did that feel? I was mad. Just like I'm mad if an editor wants to change things and doesn't talk to me about it, which is rare. Editors change poetry a lot less than they change prose. But they do. They have. And I've gotten really cranky about it. That's, <clears throat> that's really surprising. I can understand an editor changing prose, but why would an editor want to change poem. A poem is a piece of art that just seems like coming up behind a painter and saying, well, actually, this needs to be a slightly darker well, tone. A lot of editors are poets themselves, and they have strong opinions, and being it, there's, there's some line, I can't remember who it's attributed to, but something about, there's nothing like the compulsion to change someone else's draft. <laughs> and I, I understand that. So let's talk about your process. Do you write every day? No. Um, I think I ought to, and I think other people might want to, but I don't. And part of that is I write, so having written for so long and having started at a time when I didn't have a job, so I didn't have to have a schedule, the first three years I was going through the memories, I was living on money that I had inherited, thank God. Um, and. And then I went to the community of writers, which is a conference held up in, um, it's now called Pacific Palisades up near Lake Tahoe. And the process that they put their poets through is that you write a poem every day and then you workshop it the next morning. Um, I had been kind of relying on my inner workings to sit me down to write and then I'd had the habit of going and practice writing every morning for those three years. So between, between the community of writers and my own habits, I'd really gotten into this thing of do it when you feel like you want to do it and then also, oh Lord, you have to do it every day. And some combination of that has stuck with me so that if I feel a poem coming up, and I, it's like stuff suddenly goes through your head. And I pull over in a, at a vista point or whatever the hell. I wrote one of my own favorite poems in a pullout on Highway 101. And I edited it, but not very much. It was really almost whole on the back of a bank envelope. So for me, I kind of have this feeling of rhythm where it's like, okay, I feel like writing a poem, I better write it. Because if you don't write it, you lose it. If you wake up at four in the morning and you think, oh, that's a good line, you are not going to remember it at 
nobody does. So you either get up and write it or you decide you're going to lose it. And I've always been a, a fan of getting up and writing it because it might be good. So I follow my own internal feelings about that. And also I know that when I write a poem, I feel the most like myself. And so if I'm having trouble in some way or if I've got a busy time and I'm feeling scattered and it's starting to feel like, oh, sh you know, like life is no good anymore, I make myself sit on the sofa and write a poem or come in here. So I have kind of a two-part process for poetry, for essays, for years. I, I thought to myself when I started, it would be good to have four essays in reserve. I think I only ever got to two, and then immediately they weren't in reserve anymore because I used them. So I got into this process of writing them on Thursday mornings, recording with first Carolyn Crane, and then Mike Thornton, and then Paul Emery, and then Charlotte Peterson, I mean, all these lovely people that have recorded them. Write it 8 to 9.30 or so, record at 1.30, it plays at 6.25. And that kind of pressure cooker <coughs> seems to have been important to me because I did it for years and years and years. And I would know, eventually I had enough essays I could do reruns. I hated it when Terry Gross did reruns, so I didn't want to do reruns. Like anybody thinks I'm Terry Gross. But that idea of I want it to be real and new lasted for a very long time. I would usually know by about 11 if it wasn't going to work. And you could, I mean, it's then the pressure gets too high. So it's all about managing your own procrastination. And I feel like I get smarter the closer I get to a deadline, up to a point, and then after that point, I'm screwed. So that I learned to manage with these essays. Do you write everything in, in longhand, pen, pen and paper? I write about 80% of stuff in longhand. Here's my longhand. We're, dear listeners, we are looking at my notebook, which is a big mess, because <laughs> that's how I do it. Um, and this is a smaller notebook than usual, so the essay for the bigger notebooks is two pages, and these, es these essays, it would need to be three. Um, would you like a compliment about the essay process? Please. So I learned so much about editing, writing these essays, because of the time limit. And at first I would write the essay and, rec and um, time it. And back then there weren't cell phones, so there I was with my little you know, kitchen timer, timing how many minutes it was. And it would be too short or too long. And then I would figure out, okay, how can I make this longer? Or how can I make this shorter? Um, I learned how to turn sentences absolutely inside out and upside down because I wanted to say a particular thing and it was too long or too short. Um, I totally learned the thing which now helps a lot in poetry where I would be starting a story and then I would veer off. And that's part of, if you look at my essays, I start somewhere, then I go somewhere completely else, and then I come back to either join the two ideas or to the first idea. And I didn't do that on purpose, that's just how they started to sh be shaped. 
But sometimes I'll go off somewhere and go too far, or I'll go off somewhere that isn't going to work to come back. And so I learned to catch myself and say, it's like a storyteller over a campfire. It's like, no, 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 don't tell us that part, grandpa or whoever. <laughs> come back to the point. And I learned about devotion. I learned about doing something over and over and over and over that wasn't Well, I wasn't being paid. I've never been paid for the essays. It's a volunteer radio station. I wasn't uh, getting immediate feedback like you do with an audience if you're reading them poems. But there was something about showing up for that radio station every week that formed me and that helped me grow up as a person. I mean, I, I can't tell you how important it's been. And I know that it's not about, it wasn't designed to be important to me. It was designed because Carolyn Crane, at the time the news director, wanted some kind of commentary. And lots of people have asked me how I got the commentary gig, and can they have one too, and can they have mine? Can we have, like, just, I could do it once a month, and other people could do it on other weeks? Which I have never mentioned to the station at all. I've just said no. <laughs> Which is one of the perks of having a job that you're in charge of yourself. The other thing is nobody ever told me anything about subject matter. When I started, I was a poet. I didn't know how to write essays. And I didn't know much about what I would want to say. Um, I was told not to use the seven bad words and incur great fines and possibly closure on the station. No one knows what the five words, are, I mean the seven words are. But I, I know what some of them are, that, and I don't use them. Um, I really love the idea, I mean one of the reasons that when I moved up here, so I moved up here, I, what I tell people is I was a mail order bride. And then I didn't get married. But I fell in love with someone at the Writers' Conference whose family lived around here, and his family runs the Writers' Conference. And I moved up here because he had had a brain injury. I was kind of done with Stinson Beach. It was too small and too close to San Francisco. The rents were rising. I'd been there for six years. So when we decided to live together, it was going to be here or there, and I decided I should come up here for lots of reasons. But one of the big ones was he'd have more opportunities here for different kinds of jobs that he could do. And I found moving here, which is not my native territory. I like the fog bank. I like the sound of the ocean. This business of all the trees was really not fun. And now I've been here since 96, which is uh, 27, I can't remember, <coughs> do the math. Um, this was the right size place, it was bigger than Stinson and it was farther from Sacramento. Um, and it had all this natural beauty which I'd gotten used to living in Stinson Beach. But I didn't find the Yuba River for two years. How did you find it? I didn't kept talking about it. The river this and the river that. And Tad and I would, um, he was not an outdoorsy kind of person when I knew him. 
and but he liked to drive. So we would do a lot of driving and we crossed a lot of rivers. I saw rivers. North Fork, South Fork, Middle Fork of the Yuba, um, the Feather, the American. We did all this driving around, but I didn't understand what people were talking about when they talked about the river. And then one time I just went to find it without him. Um, and then went there every day for a couple of years after work at about five o'clock. It's 20 minutes from my house. And I would go sit in that water. You know, I kind of have a swimming habit. And you can't, in my opinion, really swim in the Yuba for any length of time. But that water got me going. And then I found Scott's Flat Lake about 10 years later. And that's your new haunt, right? And that's my new, well, new. I've been doing it for 10 years. Too. But that's my... That's my place. That's my place. I go there every day. I'm not a mad exerciser by nature. I, you know, I used to do exercise because I ought to. And I love being outside and I love moving, but the, the whole sort of business of exercise. I think Scotts Flat Lake and KVMR are the two places that taught me devotion. Because in the summer, when I found Scotts Flat, it was summertime and I really needed heat relief. And then, once I went in that water, I really needed to see the color of the water every day. And it turned into a practice. When you first started writing essays for KVMR, you mentioned all the kind people that would record you. But then the pandemic hit, and you've been recording from home. Did that change your essays? Did that change the process? I'm sure it did, but I'm not quite sure how. I mean, the pandemic was a big deal. And at the same time, my life didn't change particularly. I still had, I, I got rid of my coaching office and started working with people on the phone, but I still had the same clients. Um, I still wear a mask. I still feel like the pandemic isn't over. But I've certainly changed back into being a more social person. Those early months, um, and at first I didn't record at home. At first I went to Paul Emery's home studio. And then one day he told me how he and his girlfriend had been out to a restaurant that night before. And I thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't be sharing a microphone with Paul. And then I learned, I can't even remember how I learned how to do it on the I think I just practiced and tried it on the voice function on my phone. By that time, cell phones had been invented. And, uh, and I have to watch out for two things. One is traffic out my front door on Newtown Road, and the other is frogs. Because at this time of year, if I were to record in the evening, you would hear a frog background to everything I say, with the, even with the front door closed. But a lot of the time, the best sound effects in my house are in my walk-in closet. So a lot of the time when I'm recording, I'm standing up with my elbow on the bureau, um, reading from my computer into my telephone in the closet. This next essay is a big one in that it's number 600. What does that feel like? I mean, devotion, talk about devotion. That's, that's a lot of writing. It feels ridiculous. Who does something 600 times? I mean, you know, you drive your car 600 times, brush your teeth 600 times, but who counts anything that high? I feel like, well, 
it's not like I didn't write them. I wrote every one of them once a week or once every whatever, depending on the reruns for so many years. I like having the num. you know, I can't remember why I started out numbering them in the first place, but I did and I still have them all numbered and I've written, as you know, I've put them into little books. So, um, so they're all on my computer in number order. And then if I write a book, I take the ones that are in the book and put that in a separate file with the book name on it. Steve Sandfield once told Steve Sandfield was a poet from the Ridge who was very beloved. And he was kind of a grumbly guy, and I was very fond of him. And at one point he listened to one of my essays and then read the book. I can't remember what. There was some combination where he heard it and also he read it. And he said something like, well, these are, you know, actually some of these are kind of good. Which is to say that some of them aren't that good. I understand <laughs> that when you write 600 things, they are not all going to be fabulous. So when I put them in books, I try to choose the ones either that I like best or that people have mentioned more and more. One of the earliest essays, I wrote something about how Neil Young's neck looked like a 200-year-old elephant's scrotum, and he didn't seem to mind. I've gotten more fan mail for that particular essay than any other. Someone even sent me a present. It's like a, it wasn't a related present, it was like a drawing of his. I got in the mail. I mean, it was hilarious. You're also Nevada City's first Poet Laureate? Yes. Tell me how that came about. So there are a lot of poets in Nevada City, Nevada County, but everyone is, of course, aware of Gary Snyder. And it's a little bit like being around John Updike. There's, it's like there's a godlike quality of, of fame to a person who's that well-known. Um, so I was always thinking of myself as a poet among many poets in town. And a helpful poet. I taught classes. People called me all the time to find out where the reading series was if they first moved to town. Did I know so-and-so? I mean, I spent a lot of time... Um, I ran a reading series. I did stuff for National Poetry Month. I mean, and but I wasn't the only one. Lots of us were doing this, I think. But I was probably the one people called the most often. Because part of my work in the world, which you know from the essays, is... I connect people. I'm a connective type of person. So one day I was sitting at my other coffee house, Sierra Mountain Coffee Roasters, and Eliza Tudor came up, and I didn't know her, but she introduced herself, and she said she wanted to um, start a program of having a, a, a poet laureate, and they wanted me to be the first one. And my first reaction was, are you out of your mind? I have been doing this for at least 15 years, maybe 25. Why would I do it with a name attached? And I'm, I'm a pretty good bet for saying no at first to things and then reconsidering. And part of the reconsideration process is, first of all, I don't want to do any more work. And I work for a living. I don't have any inheritances in my life now. So. When I put time into something, I need to get paid because I've got a mortgage, and as we all know, the PG&E bill just never goes down. 
So she asked me to do it, and I said, you're kidding, and no. And then she tried again, and I called a friend of mine who was at this poetry festival, Indigo Moore, who was at the time the Poet Laureate of Sacramento, and I said, why on earth would I do this thing that's going to be more work and no money? And he said, because anytime you can get the poetry world and the civic world, this was something that the Board of Supervisors had to okay. He said, anytime you can get those two bodies to agree, it's important. And I thought, well, that's a point. Why? Why is it important? Um, I didn't ask him, but I think what he would say is it validates poetry, which is one of the more marginalized art forms. And what I know now is it validates the poet. I mean, I had more people come talk to me and congratulate me, who I thought knew, knew who I was already. And I mean, I, I was astonished at the public response to that. And partly for me, I hadn't been around any Poets Laureate for it. I mean, we didn't have a state Poet Laureate then. We hadn't had for years. Some of my very most famous teachers had become Poets Laureate of the United States, but I knew them up in the mountains where we were all writing poems every day. So, so one thing was I told them I have to have some money. And I also told them, for that amount of money, I will only do these things. So I was very strict with poor Eliza. And um, did some readings and wrote some poems and fulfilled my part of the obligation. The thing that, that I didn't know was going to happen, oh, and it was really fun. That was the other thing. It was a blast. The thing I didn't know about was that the Academy of American Poets, which is a big organization based in New York, was dis designing a grant for Poets Laureate. And so my term was up at the end of April of 2019, in February of 2019, and we all know what happened in, two tw in 2020. But in 19, they put out a call for people to apply for this grant, and I saw it. And it, said, it listed, you could be a state Poet Laureate, a city Poet Laureate, um, a nation, uh, Native American nation poet laureate. Uh, you could be the poet laureate of, of um, Puerto Rico or any of the sort of outlying non-states that we have. I can't remember the name for that. They didn't mention county. And I'm kind of a gravel rouser, so I wrote immediately and said, what are we, chopped liver? There's many county poet laureates here in California. And I thought, well, they'll get they'll get on this for the next year. And instead, they put in the next day, they changed it to County Poet Laureates, and that meant I had to apply, because I'd made the trouble to get them to include that. And in my procrastinating style, I applied at the last minute, and I got one of the grants. I was one of the first 13 in the, I hate the word cohort in this way, but in the first cohort of this grant. And that was fabulous because I had, in order to get the grant, you had to design a project. And my project was, and we didn't have a California Poet Laureate, so I kind of stepped out of the county for this. And this is a little my style too, where I'll expand out if I can. So I got 
And I knew what I would do immediately when I was given the thought. What would you have as a project? Well, I said, I would get all the teachers I know from California Posts and Schools, where I used to work, to go into classrooms and have the kids write about fire and disaster. And I would then gather that work in and make an anthology that was kid poems, but also adult poems from all over the state. And I produced this anthology, and then we would do readings from the anthology all over the state. So I'd worked for California Poets in the Schools. I knew how to make books because I'd made my own books. So I knew all the costs of all that stuff, and I knew how to do it. I knew the cover designer. I knew the inside designer. I mean, it was a total piece of cake putting together all the things I knew how to do. I'd run reading series. I knew poets all over the place. I could put out a call. And we did that, and that was really fun. I got the grant. So the other sneaky thing is they hadn't said, they hadn't talked well enough about what they were giving us. So it turned out they wanted to give us money to do a project, and then they wanted to give us money for our own art that they didn't really dif differentiate unless you got one of the grants. And then suddenly, they gave me $75,000. And they told me to keep 45000 of it. And I'm still saving some of that for my next used car. But that really changed my life, to have that kind of money in reserve. So, this is a very long answer to your question. I'm enjoying it. Okay. Anyway, then we were all, I got the thing done. I got, I balanced the book so that it was adults and children. It was men and women. It was... All the different marginalized groups were represented as much as I could get them to be represented. I balanced it statewide in terms of geography. I didn't really look at age outside of children versus adult. That's one of the things. And I was busted by somebody who also makes anthologies because there were more women than men in there. And I had to laugh because that was something I hadn't paid that much attention to. And there's so many. Everything else is more men than women. So we got everything done. I printed it out, print on demand. And all the readings were going to take place in National Poetry Month 2020, which is April. So they were all shut down immediately. And we did some later on Zoom. It's kind of lasted. I still am sometimes putting together a reading from that anthology. I sent it. The other thing I was going to do with the anthology Part of the plan was to print them out and sell some, and that money of selling them would help to print out ones I could give away. And I sent them to public libraries in California, school libraries, and prison libraries. So there are lots in circulation in those places. Molly, I, I am very much enjoying this conversation. I know that you are busy, but you know, before I go, Coming back to your prolific writer, you've been writing essays for KVMR for years now. We're coming up, as we said, on the 600. What would you say to people that want to write but don't, either because they don't feel like their writing is good enough, or, or what would you say to people who think that writing essays or, or poems is, is not a good use of time?
So I think the point is human beings need to express themselves in a personal way. And that can be that can look like anything. You can have somebody baking their head off and inventing recipes. And that's personal expression, that's self-expression. Any kind of art is self-expression. People I know who are drawn to writing, I work with a lot of people who have had families, especially women who've had families and jobs, and now they're at a certain age, maybe not retired yet, but thinking about the last third of their lives. And they're like, darn it, I wanted to write. I've always wanted to write. I am now going to write. Some people have that kind of draw toward it. The other thing I did to, that I think qualifies as devotion is that for 22 years I taught cancer patients at our local hospital to write about their experience. And that's not a creative, that's not based in being a creative writer at all, but it's about writing about what's going on for you. It's called expressive writing. And I never taught anybody about verbs and line breaks or anything like that. I just, for 22 years, made up six prompts for each class and said, tell us about your prom dress. Tell us about the person who gives you chemo. Tell us about what you did with the hair that fell out of your head during chemo. Tell us what words from cancer you hate most. Or let's redefine, let's take metastasize and make up a new definition for it. Um, we lost, in that time period, 17 people died of their cancers, sometimes died of their third or fourth cancer. A lot of them are still alive, some died of old age. I think that writing is, like other art forms, something that people feel like they want to do. And if you're not drawn to it, it's fine with me. Not everybody likes language. I mean, language for me is just the most fun thing. Um, and I use a lot of my grandmothers, both of my grandmothers were big talkers and they, you know, I'll say icebox, I don't say refrigerator. So, and that's turned into a little bit of a shtick, but it's also natural to me. It's like I, I just, talking to myself, I don't say refrigerator, I say icebox. Or talking to the cats, I say, be quiet until I get the milk out of the icebox, and then they aren't quiet, and then I get the milk out. So, nobody has to write if they don't feel like it. But it is portable and cheap. You need a pen and a piece of paper. And it is, or you need your phone. I should probably speak to the modern century. You know, you can do this with your thumbs on your phone while you're in the waiting room for your chemo treatment or for whatever else is going on. You don't have to write about deep personal stuff. But the people, you know, when anything really difficult happens in this country, everybody turns to poetry. And every, you know, 9-11, everybody went back to a poem by W.H. Auden about 1939 and a big disaster. Poetry, I think, is the language of emotion. And people go there when they need an expression for what's going on that they can't find in themselves or they can't find anywhere else. Thank you. Thank you. Really nice to talk to you. Likewise.